Well, last week we saw the revival broke out and the alliances with Gentiles have been broken. They're confessing sin. They're confessing the Lord's goodness and mercy. Uh, so just to give you a kind of a rough time frame, what's going on here, the wall has been built, but Nehemiah doesn't leave. Why didn't he leave? Because he knows that ultimately the Lord needs to save these people. A wall was not going to keep him safe. Uh, they need to be saved from the inside out. And so we'll see in chapter 8, they have a conviction of sin, and the people are mourning and weeping. And then chapter 9, um, we have uh, the confession of sin that takes place, and they're confessing all these things, not only about their sin, but they're confessing the greatness of God and how He cares for them. In chapter 10, we're going to see the results of making a covenant with God. What is that about? Especially when y'all were reading, I noticed when it says, and we will pronounce a curse upon ourselves. And you're like, ooh, should we be saying this in church? Yes, but it's not for us, as we'll see in just a moment. Um, but they are going to make a covenant here. And so ultimately, these people, to use a modern-day phrase perhaps, they're on fire for the Lord, and they're ready to, to go the distance. So glad we sang, I surrender all, because that's what they're saying in essence. The Lord has saved us. He's set us apart for himself, so we will live it out for him. And so people love the idea of being on fire for the Lord. We're drawn to those people that become new believers, and they're ready to win the world for Christ. And we go, you know, you really can't do that. That's a little over the top. But we're, that's not even true. We've grown cold too many times in our own hearts than when God first saved us. But we're drawn to it, but when the rubber meets the road, when you have to make the hard decisions of following Christ, it's not so easy. And yet, John the Baptist puts it like this, Matthew 3, 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. When true repentance ignites our hearts by the Holy Spirit and we turn from sin and follow Christ, change occurs. I'm not putting it off on y'all. I'm saying the Holy Spirit is too powerful. He will change you. It's not overnight, it's a little bit at a time, and some people's sanctification, you know, it's on different levels, we know that according to Scripture, but uh, at that point, you need to live it out, and the people are going to basically pronounce this curse upon themselves if they don't live it out, and you would say, why would they do that? Y'all, that's the Mosaic Covenant, that if they don't live for the Lord, there's a curse, what about us? Well, no, I'm not there yet. We'll talk about it. So these people are signing the covenant. They must be precious in God's sight because the Lord has forever etched their names in his word. We'll meet these folks in heaven one day. So what we're going to see by outline is we'll see verse 1 through 8, the leaders and the heads of 21 priestly families. Verse 9 through 13, we'll see the heads of 17 Levitical families. Verse 14 through 27, heads of 44 leading families. And then really the last part is we're going to camp most of the time, and that is the obligations to obey the law or the word at home, work, and church. Now, they wouldn't call it church. They would say the temple. But there's great applications for us here today. So without further ado, let's go straight into the text. This is the word of God. Chapter 10, verse 1 through 8. On the seals of the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Zedekiah was probably Nehemiah's secretary, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashur, Amariah, Malkijah, 
Hattush, Shabaniah, Maluk, Harim, Meramoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginathon, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, Mahiman, Maaziah, Bilgai, Sheamiah, these are the priests who I've just named for you as Nehemiah, his secretary, and then 21 heads of the priestly households. And you might be saying, well, hold on. Isn't Ezra a priest? I don't see his name there anywhere. Well, Ezra is not the head of his house. The head of his household is Sariah, who is the first one listed in verse 2, who is probably his dad or even his grandfather. So these are all heads of different clans of priests. Um, it's just interesting as a side note, um, Nehemiah is not called the governor here. And you say, well, it, it says governor in my text. Well, I know it does. But actually, it's that Persian title, Tershatha. Um, Susanna Spurgeon used to call her husband, Charles Spurgeon, Tershatha, which means your excellency. And you go, well, that's bizarre. Well, not exactly. First Peter 3, 6, following, she's following after Sarah, who called Abraham her Lord. I'm not imposing that at grace, just to be clear, but kind of like that. All right, <laughs> continuing on, verse 9 through 13, and the Levites, Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, Benui of the sons of Hanadad, Cadmiel and their brothers, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kelita, Peleiah, Hanan, Micah, Rohab, Hashabiah, Zakur, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Bani, and Benuni. Uh, these are the 17 heads of Levitical households. Remember, the priest comes out of the tribe of Levi. And are, they are of the line of Aaron, okay? They have to be of the line of Aaron um, to be priest. And here we have the Levites. And finally, we've got the 44 heads of leading families, verse 14 through 27. The chiefs of the priests, uh, rather, the chiefs of the people, Parosh, Pahath, Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Buni, Azgad, Babai, Adonijah, Bigvai, Adin, Ater, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodiah, Hashum, Bazai, Harif, Anathoth, Nabai, Machpesh, Meshulam, Hazir, Meshezabel, Zadok, Jadua, Pelatiah, Hanan, Ananiah, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashub, Helohesh, Pilha, Shobek, Rechum, Hashabna, Maasaiah, Ahaya, Hanan, Anan, Maluk, Harim, Baana. Thanks. By the way, I'm glad we're moving on to the book of John after we're done with this. 44 heads of leading families. Uh, and you may go, well, Jeff, I've studied the text well, and I hope you have, because these numbers are larger than the ones found in Ezra 2 and Nehemiah 7. Why is that? Well, think about this. This is a growing community. They've been there for a while. There's more returnees perhaps coming from Babylon, or think about this. Remember when Babylon came and took the Jewish people away, they left the, most of the poor there. So the, these poor Israelites never went to Babylon, and they have now joined in with the returning exiles from Babylon. They're all Jews, and uh, so now we have at larger numbers. So now we've got obligations of the covenant taking place, and really that's made of the, of the Old Testament Mosaic law along with some practical applications of the law. 
And get this, they're not going to make a covenant. They're going to cut a covenant. You don't make covenants in the scriptures. You cut them. And you go, what's the difference? Well, what you would do, and this is, this is a bit grotesque, but this is what you would do, is you would take the animals that you sacrificed or, or that you killed, but right after you kill them, you cut them in half. And you make a pathway much like this, and you put the heads on this side and the back parts on this side. And you, you do this. So as you walk down this aisle of, of, of committing yourself to this covenant, you'd look and you'd see dead animals, halves on either side. And you say, why, why would that be the case? Well, here's the way it works. When the two parties walk in between those animals, it's symbolic, saying, if I break this covenant, this is what will happen to me and my descendants. So it's very, very serious. They put themselves under oath. If they don't keep this, they will be cursed See, the Mosaic law was very clear about this. You follow the Lord, you have blessing. You don't follow the Lord, you're cursed. He warns them, Deuteronomy 27, 28, you're gonna have pestilence, fever, uh, heat, sword, famine. I'm gonna send you out of your land. I'm gonna spew you out of the land. And that's exactly what happened. Well, now some of you are getting a little nervous. There's some questions going through your head. What about the New Testament believers? I mean, there's days I, uh, no, there's not days. Every day, I don't obey the Lord as I should. Are we under a curse? Well, keep in mind, there's two different types of covenants. There was bilateral covenants, meaning you keep your part and I'll keep my part. Uh, Israel, you obey me and I will bless you. You don't obey me and I will curse you. Uh, There was also unilateral covenants. Abraham, do you remember God telling Abraham, if you will just follow me, then I will bless you. He doesn't say that. It's unilateral. We see in Genesis 15 that God himself uh, walks through the covenant that Abraham had cut. Abraham fell asleep. Why? His role in the covenant was, was nothing, basically. God says, I will bless you. I will curse those people that curse you. And now you walk with me. See, it's unilateral. For us in the new covenant, we are, uh, this is the new covenant that Christ cut. And he didn't put an animal on either side. He himself stepped up to be the lamb of God that would say, I will be not just killed. The Greek is very clear. He was slaughtered. The lamb of God slaughtered for us. That's the term that's used. We use the word slain, but it's really much better uh, translated as slaughter. We know what that means when you have to slaughter animals. And that's what Jesus did for us. So now our job in the new covenant was just simply God saves us. And now we walk with him. Now, to be clear, it doesn't mean that the law of sowing and reaping is now gone for a believer. No, I mean, God disciplines those whom he loves. And so we do need to follow Christ, but not as a way to somehow receive his blessing. We are blessed because of Jesus Christ alone. So another question that might cross your mind, is it okay to make a vow to the Lord? I mean, they're making a vow to the Lord. They're they're stepping into a covenant. They're in some ways stepping into the old Mosaic covenant. Again, they're kind of reinitiating it. But is it okay to make a vow to the Lord? I mean, typically Jesus says in Matthew 5, 37, let your yes be yes and your no, no. And yet I made a covenant 
and I'm looking around here and I'm seeing a whole lot of people that have made covenants to the Lord. Anybody married in here today? We made a covenant. It's a marriage covenant. It's not just a promise. It's a very solemn sort of covenant to the Lord, to, the, to our spouse. And notice we do it before God and these witnesses. What are these witnesses there for? They're to call you back to your covenant should you decide to break it someday. You just thought you came for the party, didn't you? So continuing on, what are they going to do? Well, they're going to do three things ultimately. They're going to say that God's word rules in our home. Number two, they're going to say God's word rules at our workplace. And number three, God's word rules at church, okay? That's kind of a good working outline. Verse 28 and 29, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have note what they've done, separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God. Their wives, sons, daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding join with their brothers and their nobles and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our God, and his rules and his statutes. Now, that last part, let's take a look. It uses the word commandments, rules, statutes. These were different ways uh, to refer to God's law. They're, they're different terms. Um, commandments are typically seen as God's rules. The term rules is seen as God's judicial pronouncements. Statutes are God's permanent decrees. But some t- most of the time, it just says God's law. But sometimes it differentiates between those two. It's not a big deal for us, but I want you to focus on this. They separated themselves from the people to the law of God. What's that mean? I think what it means is holiness starts and ends with the word of God. Psalm 1, how blessed is the man who's not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is what? In the law of the Lord, whom he meditates day and night. It says, whatever he does, he, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They're like chaff, which the wind drives away. You know that, that psalm. It's a good psalm to reflect upon because ultimately, we don't hold to some sort of holiness standards outside the Bible. We hold to what does the Bible say? And so you have to ask yourself, well, this doctrine of separation it seems to be clear in here. The people are separating themselves. What about us in the church? Should we separate ourselves from the world? Well, I don't know. What does the Bible say? That's an idea. First Corinthians 4, or rather 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 17. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what, to, what fellowship is light with darkness? Now, 2 Corinthians 6 is referring to typically false teaching. Are there other applications? Yes, like dating. We'll talk about that in a moment. Um, Or courtship. So certainly, John 17 lines out, be in the world, but not of it. Jesus says, I'm not of the world. And he calls us not to be of the world. So the point is that we should be distinct from the world, we should look different in our beliefs, our values, our relationships. It never means leaving the world, though, just to be very clear about that. We're supposed to reach the gospel, rather reach the lost with the gospel. And let me tell you what, be careful. 
If you pray that God would give you opportunities, lo and behold, he does. Uh, Friday is my wife's birthday, and so I was going out to get her some coffee at a chocolate place. You know, people that put chocolate and coffee together, it's, you know, it's a rich place. You know what they're trying to do. Reach us, and they do. So I went to go get her some coffee, and I, um, I met the guy before. I talked to him before, and I was the only one there. And so I, he said, oh, this is a different flavor. I said, let me double check my wife, make sure she wants that. And I couldn't reach her at the time. And so I thought, this is a great opportunity. He and I, there's no one else here. And so I said, hey, where, you know, talk to him a little bit where he grew up and a little bit about him. So where do you go to church? He goes, oh, I don't go anywhere. And my grandmother goes to Rome Catholic Church down the road. I said, okay. Well, I think, I told him, I said, I think the church is one of the primary roles is to prepare people for the next life. So how about that? Are you prepared? And he goes, uh, what do you mean? I said, well, I mean, we'll all die someday. Um, if, God forbid, if you were to die today, you think you'd go to heaven? You think you're right with God? And he said, I have no idea. And I said, well, I can share with you in just a few minutes how you can know for certain. Are you interested? Sure. And so I was able to pl- plow into the gospel, and, and you know I'm a big believer, and you got to sh- make sure and share with people how they're lost first. And so I said, well, hey, you know what? Um, Bible's pretty clear on what he expects or what God expects. Have you ever lied before? Um, yeah, what did it make you? A liar. Okay, have you ever stolen anything, even small? Yes. What does that make you? A thief. I get the idea I'd heard this before. And um, so I just went into a couple of commandments. I said, well, this, this kind of makes you a lying, thieving, adulterer at heart. Do you think you're you think you'd be innocent or guilty before God? He said, I think I'd be guilty. I said, heaven or hell? And he said, you know, I don't know. I said, well, I said, I share that with you to let you know I've committed all those and much, much more, but you can know for certain. And then I went into straight into how Jesus Christ came to the earth, lived the perfect life you and I can never live, died on a cross, and the great exchange took place. He took my sin and he gave me his righteousness Throw it three days later, rose from the dead, and then one day he's going to split the sky and my body and soul will be made one again after death. But I know for certain, uh, John, that if, you, if I were to die today, I'd go to heaven. And um, I said, have you heard this before? He goes, yeah, actually, I've heard this before. I said, have you come to that place of trusting in Christ alone? And he says, no. You said, my thoughts are you don't, you know, Muslims don't, tell people what to do. The Jews shouldn't tell people what to do. Christians shouldn't tell people what to do. You know, everybody's, I said, but you yourself have your own view. And he said, well, yeah. I said, here's the thing. I just let you know this because if you've got a a gospel of the book of, you have a Bible, yeah, I encourage you to read the book of John. You could find out who this Jesus character is all about. He actually talks more about hell than he does heaven. But heaven is a real place and I would want you to be there. And my point in sharing all that is to let you know we cannot separate ourselves out from the world. We separate in beliefs, values, yes, and best friends. But folks, if we are not going out of our way to reach the lost, what are we here for? I mean, as I said before, we might as well just hold you under at the time of baptism, send you on to glory. (laughs) We got work to do. I digress. Verse 30, 
We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Uh, have you ever been at a wedding and you hear the man up front, who gives this woman to be married to this man? That's from scripture. I'll never forget being at a rehearsal dinner and a very uh, feminist lady came up to me and she goes, I don't like the fact that you're saying that. I said, saying what? Who gives this woman to be married to that? That's wrong. It's like, it's scripture. This is dads, this is what you're called to do. Um, walk your daughter down the aisle. So answer the question, her mother and I, yes. And we get this from scripture. So what are we saying here? Well, does this still apply to the New Testament church? You bet it does. If you are single today, don't date an unbeliever. Do not be courted or court an unbeliever. 2 Corinthians 6.14 makes this very clear. And I would, I would also include that don't date a hypocrite. The number of times I've met with people and they said, I'll say, hey, are you dating? Is this guy a believer or is this gal a believer? Yes, really. Well, he believes in God. And I, I find myself thinking, the devil believes in God. Are you gonna date him next? You know, we are called to date believers, uh, so if a person says, oh, I believe in God, that doesn't make him a believer. It makes him a theist. So singles, listen to me on this. Uh, if you're married to an unbeliever today, 1 Corinthians 7 makes it clear, stay in that marriage. God may use you to save that person. Yes, you are, you are not smart. You were foolish to marry an unbeliever. Some of you may not have known what the scripture says on that, but if you knew and you did it anyway, it's okay. Uh, but... Pray that the Lord would save your spouse. He doesn't have to. But God may use you in that. And whoever you are, I would say God's word rules in your home. Does it not? It should. Joshua 24, 15 makes this very clear when Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will, what? Serve the Lord. So however you educate, public school, private school, homeschool, you need to follow Deuteronomy 6, 7 that you are teaching your kids diligently. Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. Ephesians 6.4 puts it this way, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And some of you say, well, yeah, but my kids, they don't, they're not Christians, so I don't make them go to church. Do they live in your house? Do they eat your food? I mean, are, are they financially supported by you? Bring them to church. You know, there's, we can't make them become believers. I'm not saying that. We shouldn't encourage our kids to be hypocrites. But if they're going to hear the gospel, if they're going to be amongst other believers, I would say your chances are much better that they will become believers than by themselves. So God's word rules at home. Let's see where else God's word rules. Verse 31, and if the peoples of the land bring in gods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year, the extraction of every debt. God's word is gonna rule where we work. The first three, well, the C3 aspects for Israel. Number one is the Sabbath. That's a, that's a set apart for the Lord, no work on Saturdays for them. Um, but the Bible never said anything about buying from foreigners on the Sabbath. And so the Jews have found a loophole. <laughs> we won't work, but we're gonna buy from the people that bring the stuff to us. And 
they're going to say no. The applications of the Old Testament law would say we don't need to do that. That's Old Testament Israel. Uh, the Sabbath was a sign recognizing God as a creator. He sanctified that day for himself. What about us in the New Testament? I mean, there's differing views on this. I'm not a strict Sabbatarian, but I do think this is the Lord's day in the New Testament. It's set apart for the Lord. Primarily, it's good to rest and worship on this day. Of course it is. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves. What other applications? People have differing views on that. But um, for the Old Testament Israel, he said, no more. We have set this day aside. And certainly for us in the New Testament, I think Sunday are special, and they should be. Number two, to forego the crops of the seventh year. You see, in Israel, not only did they take off the seventh day, which was Saturday for them, uh, but also the seventh year. Get this, if you were a farmer, you were supposed to let the land lie fallow. That means rest. You didn't work your crops all year. And the Bible says you would allow for the poor to enjoy anything that grew wild on it. It says in Exodus 23. Why? This is the Lord's land. It doesn't belong to me. And the point of it is the Lord would provide extra for them in the sixth year. So much extra that they would not have to work the fields as the seventh year. Question, did they follow that pattern? No, they did not. As a matter of fact, it seems like for five, almost 500 years, they did not follow the pattern. So when God sends them over to Babylon, what happens? They stay 70 years, and people go, why 70? Well, there's reasons for that. For every seventh year, they, they did not let the land lie fallow for 490 years. And God says, you're going to let the land lie fallow now, okay? 70 times 7 is 490 years for you math geeks out there. Uh, number three, they were gonna forgive debts as lined out in the Mosaic law. Remember, Hebrews could be sold into slavery to pay for the debts. In the seventh year, you're supposed to go free. Some of them were not letting them go free. So what application is there for us? Well, you have to ask yourself, does God's word rule you in your workplace? Whether you work from home or the office or whatever you may do, at the end of the day, does God's word rule you? Like, are you submitting to that? Or are you submitting to pragmatism? Whatever works is what I do. I mean, just to be clear, I would encourage you, make as much money as you want. There's nothing wrong with that. God does not condemn riches. He condemns love of riches. But my chief end is not to make a whole lot of money. My chief end is to make disciples and loving the lost, and loving the brethren. Great commandment, great commission living. This is, this is the end game for me, or it should be. So don't cut corners. You might make a little more, but you're gonna cheat the Lord to do it? And you say, what do you mean cheating the Lord? Are you taking care of your family? Does your family see you? Are you the person that just brings home the paycheck? And you go, I provide. Well, yeah, you're providing financially. Are you providing emotionally? Are you loving your wife as Christ loved the church? Wives, are you respecting your husbands? Are you cheating them? So we need to ask ourselves, does God's word really rule me at the home? And does it really rule me at work? One other aspect we're going to see is God's word rule me when it comes to the things of the church. 
or for Israel would be the temple. Verse 32 and 33, we also take on ourselves the obligation to give a yearly one-third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. So the point, what they're saying is God commanded, we're gonna do it. What is this one-third part of a shekel for the service of God? Well, this was lined out in Exodus 30, that everybody aged 20 years old and up had to pay a half shekel. And you say, yeah, but they're not paying a half. They're paying a third. They're cheating God. No, actually, they're not. The values have changed over this time period. For the Jews, it was 15 shekels to one gold, rather 15 silver shekels to one gold shekel. But now they're under the Persian system, and the Persian system is 10 silver shekels to one gold shekel. So they're, they're staying with the law, but they're also realizing that the, the, uh, the money is not exactly the same. So ultimately, they're agreeing to take care of God's temple. A couple of examples of that is they're going to put out that showbread in the morning and the evening, and God is going to use those physical remembrances when they see that showbread out there every day that man does not live by bread alone, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, but God's going to provide for his people. We also see that burnt offerings are going to happen. That's, that's the whole animal. You'd burn the whole thing. And we see this in Romans 12 for us, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. We climb up every day and put ourselves on the sacrificial pyre. What are we sacrificing? Our hopes, our dreams, and what are we doing? We're exchanging them for God's hopes and dreams for us, his plan. Not my will, but thine be done. That's what we're doing. So how do we do that? To take care? So he's calling them to take care of God's people. God's temple is us now, not a building, but the people of God. Verse 34 through 37, we, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord, also to bring to the house of our God to the priest who minister in the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle. And as it is written in the law, the firstborn of our herds, of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough in our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. Now you caught that emphasis, didn't you? First. First, first. Yeah, that's done on purpose. The point of it is, is we're gonna give to God our best. We're gonna give to God our best. My wife, Rebecca, is so funny. If someday I will uh, have a long day at work, hard day, that never happens here, just to be clear. But if it ever does, uh, she'll, she'll say, hey, how was your day? And I'll go, oh, you know, it's okay, it's all right. And then she'll prod a little more, like, yeah, tell me about it. And I'm just, you know, don't want to talk about it. She goes, hold on a second. I don't want the leftovers. Don't give me the leftovers. 
some of you folks know about that. I'm giving my way. Ah, here you go. Here's some nothing. No, I want your best. Tell me what's up. She's not. A, she's easygoing, relaxed. But uh, she wants, of course, that's what you would want. God, how much more should we give him our best, not the leftovers? And so that's what the people are saying is that we give God the best. Proverbs 3, 9, and 10, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. And so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. And notice what else they're going to give them. Maybe some of y'all caught it. Not just the first fruits of the grain and the, and the fruit trees, but also the first fruits of the womb. We're going to give to you the firstborn of our sons. You go, what is that about? Well, uh, firstborn of our sons, they were set apart for the Lord. Why? Uh, well, it's because it's the first of a man's strength. It's the firstborn. Uh, in the memory of God saving the firstborn of Israel from death in Egypt should percolate in their minds. Remember that story. God says, I'm gonna kill the firstborn. And it's, and it's the one that's the first of the strength. And he's gonna do that to all Egypt. So he tells them, put the blood of the lamb on the door frame and only are you protected by the blood of the lamb. This is, this is straight New Testament stuff. Um, and so the firstborn, though, of the house was spared by God. But it didn't just stop there. It, the way it worked is that every generation of firstborn sons belonged to God in a unique way. So you still had to give God your firstborn son. You could, you could buy him back, you could redeem him, and it cost five shekels, which is about $2.50 for you firstborns out there. I'm second born, so I'd like to think I cost more. But at that point, you also had to redeem him, but you had to present him to the Lord. Lord, this is our firstborn son. Who does this in Luke 2? Joseph and Mary. And they bring to God their firstborn son. And you can imagine God looking down and going, that's my firstborn as well. So that's what the people are determining. We're going to give God our best. Verse 38 and 39, and the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes, and, all the, and the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of of our God. So, application here for us, um, we are the church of God. We are to take care of the temple of God. Remember, we are singularly a temple of God, uh, that we have the Holy Spirit within us, but we are also corporately, as a body, the temple of God. So the question to ask yourself is, does God's word rule you in your home, your workplace, and here in the body of Christ so that you're giving your time, your talents, your treasures to the Lord. You see, God's words rule, rather his word has to rule in our home and work and church. It just has to. I'm not saying it has to in order for us to be believers. No, you're believers in Jesus Christ by the grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ alone, trusting in what he did for you on the cross. But do you really want to walk at a distance from the Lord in this life? 
the one who saved you, the one who knows the plans he has for you. So at Grace Church, our motto here is Grace Church exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ by his grace for his glory. That's how we live primarily under the word of God. The question we have to ask ourselves is, do we? Is that a great little mantra that we have on the back of our bulletins and we go, I like that, that's great. But when the rubber meets the road, do we actually do it? That's something only we can answer. But not only that, but is it happening in the American church overall? I would be remiss as a fellow elder at a church to not make mention of this. Many of you perhaps are regarding the American church. The American church is now sliding fast into apostasy and sliding fast into just renouncing the word of God. At one time we pretended like we held to it, but oftentimes we don't. Um, This past week or so, there was a conference held by Andy Stanley, who was a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary where he defended having two men who were in same-sex unions as speakers. Although he admits that the Bible affirms marriage between one man and one woman, he refuses to state that gay marriage is sinful and even commends same-sex couples. And yet Titus 1.9 reminds us of the role of an elder. It says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may also be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict. It's not enough for us to just teach what the Bible says. Sometimes we have to just go, this, what you're doing is wrong. Certainly, it's not just for elders to do, but even those in our own families. We have to make sure that the Word of God is ruling in our home, work, church. We'll have to ask ourselves, then, what does the Bible say about sexual sin? 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 covers many sins, but notice what he says. Do you, know, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. I was thankful that Al Mohler at Southern Seminary uh, wrote about this situation in October 3rd of World Magazine. He says, what is missing from Stanley's argument? What's missing, first of all, is repentance from sin. This is not a small matter. The Apostle Paul summarized the gospel as repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 20, 21. There's no call to repentance in the message Stanley presents. Also missing is sanctification. There is no call to holiness, no call to flee from sin and obey Christ. Instead, Stanley presented the idea that sinners may find refuge in a same-sex marriage because obedience to Scripture and biblical understanding of sexuality is, quote-unquote, not sustainable, Stanley says. This is not the gospel as preached by the apostles and held fast by the faithful church. This is a departure from the faith once delivered to the saints. There's no joy in saying this, but Andy Stanley's approach as defended in detail this past Sunday is flatly contradictory to what Paul wrote to the Christians in Corinth. 
Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 is completely consistent with the New Testament as a whole. It is essential to our understanding of the gospel of Christ. Paul requires that Christians draw lines on this matter, but he, draw, he drew lines inspired by the Holy Spirit and out of pastoral love, saying, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery, go and from now on sin no more. It is impossible to defend a same-sex marriage from Scripture. It is impossible to imagine the apostles conceding that obedience to God's word might be, quote-unquote, unsustainable. For some believers, uh, for some believers, uh, theologically, Andy Stanley appears quite ready to unhitch the church, not only from the Old Testament, as he has previously argued, but from the apostles. This is not biblical Christianity. It is Stanley's own invention, and it is not plausible. The sexual arrangements and behaviors covered by his own logic cannot stop with what he identified as same-sex marriage. The point he's getting at the end is that Stanley's unbiblical argument leads not only to same-sex marriage, but other sexual sins as well. Even as I say those hard statements, just to be clear, our role as a church is not just to be prophets to the world, to sound forth the word of God, even if it makes us be killed for the faith, but also to show our love to people and give them the gospel. It's two-pronged approach. And my guess is that you're drawn to one or the other, and all of us are. And so instead, we put forth the righteous standard of God saying, that's wrong. And at the same time say, we love you. And we want you to know the Savior that saved us from the same sins. Amen. So is God's word ruling your home, your work, your church? Like the Jews here in this passage, your resolution or repentance, it's got to bear fruit or it's not real. Williamson, H.G. Williamson says, neither Old nor New Testament has any place for confessions of faith that leave lifestyle and practice unaffected. Matthew 3.8 says it even better. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So does that mean I have to work harder? No. I'm actually encouraging you to surrender more. Jesus says it like this. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm not saying it's not going to be hard but the more you can start to let go of the things of this world and follow me, you find it that much more restful because you're finding your rest in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your hard words too in this passage that we see that ultimately uh, the Christian life is, is difficult you say in this world you have tribulation, but take heart, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. And so we know that ultimately following you is gonna be a much better spot for us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to do it in ways that's honoring to the king and realizing that all it comes to is just coming to you. In your son's name we pray, amen.